Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So the other day I was thinking about our visit to the Google headquarters. You know, this was several years ago. You remember this? Oh, yeah. That's when we tried to stump those employees, right? Yeah, so listeners, Mango and I were invited to speak to the employees of Google after the release of one of our Mental Floss books. Now, this was around the time where it felt like everybody was talking about just how smart Google employees were, and, you know, all these tests that they had to take and everything they had to go through just to get hired. And so we thought we'd put them to the test, and we were sure we could stump them. We designed the world's geekiest crossword puzzle. So to explain what this was, we decided to not only create a really difficult crossword, but we decided to hire an expert in constructed languages <laughs> and make all of the answers in constructed languages as well, like Elvish and Klingon and Esperanto. Mm-hmm. And we were so cocky that we sent a message ahead of time saying that anyone who finished the puzzle would win a free subscription to Mental Floss and a few gifts from our online store. Well, not only were there more than a dozen people who completed it, they were actually correcting our grammatical mistakes. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty great. And as it turns out, that's not the only smart thing these people have done. They've also built this little company called Google. Yeah, that's impressive, too. <laughs> yeah, and I guess it's pretty big now. And, uh, you know, we were curious about how they managed to pull off this total dominance in the search engine world. So today's show is all about the origins of Google. Let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, one of the half-dozen people on the planet who still uses Dogpile <laughs> as his search engine of preference. That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. I do respect him for this choice. I know. You just want those search results just dogpiled up. Right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I, I was thinking about search engines a little bit. When you were in high school... 
Did your library have one of those, like, thick telephone books of websites? Oh, totally. I remember those, yeah. It was so ridiculous. Like, people actually thought that's how you'd search the web. Like, that's how you'd find a great history site or whatever, and and you'd look up the page. But, uh... You remember there was even a magazine called Yahoo Internet Life? (laughs) It was the best magazine. And it, told you about websites. Like, here are websites you should go to. Yeah, and even, like, Roger Ebert was a contributor. I I love that magazine. (laughs) Anyway, so I, I pulled some numbers for today's show, and according to Statista... Google's worldwide market share among search engines rose as high as 89% last year. That's wild. I know, it's so dominant. And, and I was thinking about it, it's really hard to name more than, like, five search engines. Five? I know. Well, I mean, uh, you can get, like, Google, Bing, Yahoo, Ask Jeeves. Is that still around? I I, I think so. And, yeah. and and then you're just, like, grasping, right? Like, Or or you're in dead website territory, like Excite and Alta Vista. The one of uh, choice for me as a, a high schooler was, I think it was called Web Crawler. Do you remember that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just type in Web Crawler. I'm sure one of the others bought it up. But anyway, well, for all the Googlers out there, and there must be a lot of you, today's show is really for you. Now, in past episodes, we've delved into the histories of iconic companies like Amazon and Sears and Ikea. Mm-hmm. And so now we're doing the same for Google. Because while it may be the world's most popular search engine and the second most valuable brand this side of Apple, that hasn't always been the case. So we want to take some time to explore the early days of the company and, you know, kind of try to make sense of the business model that propelled this link-fetching startup from this rented garage all the way to the 5 million square foot Googleplex it calls home today. That's right. But before we even get to the garage, we, we need to talk about a dorm room at Stanford University because that's really where Google's story starts. So this is back in 1995. An engineering major from the University of Michigan named Larry Page was just beginning his computer science PhD program at Stanford. And he was searching for a topic for his thesis, and he kept coming back to the fairly new phenomena that was the Internet. As an engineer, Page was interested in the math behind it, and he actually recognized that each web page was a point on a graph and that each link on a given page was a connection between the points. And this underlying structure gave the World Wide Web its form. And Page really wanted to understand it from the inside out. All right, but, you know, kind of getting this grip on the Internet's link structure seems pretty far off from actually building your own search engine. So I'm, I'm curious, like, what's the line of thinking that leads from one to the other? So you've got to remember that Page was getting an early start on his thesis, so he still had plenty of time to find the final shape of his project. And one realization that pointed him in the right direction was that the Internet didn't provide a way to tell which websites were linking to a given page. Hmm. So, for example, if you go on someone's Tumblr page, right, you can follow links from one page to another, but you can't actually tell which sites link back to that person's Tumblr. Is that true? I have to admit, I don't really use Tumblr. Mm-hmm. So, okay. <laughs> and, so, and so Paige was annoyed by this. Yeah, so he thought it was important to know who was linking to whom. And, and while that might not be super interesting to most of us, it actually makes a lot of sense why it would be a concern for someone like him. I mean, think about how important publishing is among academics. For math and science scholars especially, publishing research papers is a chief way to make a name for yourself. Yeah. And the only thing that might get you more credibility is to be cited as an authority in someone else's paper. And that's because citations make up the backbone of academic papers. Like, you're always citing previously published research as evidence to back up your points. So for the academic community, it's not just the original content that determines a paper's worth. It's also the citations in that paper and the number of future papers that later cite it. So the the links are kind of like a form of citation as as he's putting this idea together. That's right. So in Page's mind, the whole Internet was more or less based on a citation system, except that unlike in academic publishing, nobody was keeping track of which pages were actually being cited by others. Okay, so it's it's starting to make sense here. So in the academic world, if you saw that, you know, like a chemistry professor's paper had been cited by a 100 other chemists, 
you could walk away from that being fairly confident that it was an important paper. Mm -hmm. And so what you're saying is Page wanted to find a way to apply that kind of ranking system to the Internet as a whole. Exactly. And he figured that by counting up the backlinks associated with every web page on the Internet, he could actually determine the importance or at least the relative popularity of each one. And with that goal in mind, Project Backrub was born. You know, we've talked about this fact before that that it was called Backrub at first, but I don't think I actually know how they came up with that. Do you, do you know why it was called that at first? I know. Initially, I thought they just had like a closet full of masseuses. Right, but, uh, probably. Actually, it goes back to the idea of retrieving and quantifying backlinks. Hmm. So, so that would explain the back part, but, but what about the rub? I need, I need to know the rub, Manga. Why the rub? <laughs> well, the program built for back rub was actually known as a web crawler because, you know, like you were saying, it crawls the whole internet and it counts up links as it goes. So I guess back rub just sounded better than back crawl. I don't know. I mean, they both sound a little creepy to me, so I'm kind of <laughs> glad they ended up changing names to it. But, but maybe Larry Page doesn't bear the full blame for that because he actually had a lot of help in bringing back rub to life, right? Yeah, so the other co-founder, Sergey Brin, also got into the act around then, too. And at the time, he was a second-year grad student at Stanford's computer science department. He was ultimately the one who helped Page figure out how to make use of a raw count of links that Backrub accumulated. So were these guys, like, old friends? I'm curious, how did Brin get involved? I mean, did, did he just want to help out a friend, you know, trying to start this project or what? Not really. In fact, for a while, they were really antagonistic. And the two had first met in the summer of 95. This is when Page was visiting the Stanford campus as a prospect. And Brin was the tour guide, and he took him around and also showed him nearby San Francisco. But it didn't actually go that well. So Brin and Page argued the entire time. Really? And they debated everything that came up during the tour. And, and they weren't shy about their initial dislike for one another either. So there's this 2005 interview with Wired. And in it, Page says, Sergey is pretty social. He likes meeting people. I thought it was pretty obnoxious. <laughs> he had really strong opinions about things, and I guess I did too. Yeah. And Bryn's own account kind of just shows that the whole feeling was mutual, but maybe also not that serious. He said, quote, we both found each other obnoxious, but we say it a little bit jokingly. Obviously, we spent a lot of time talking to each other, so there was something there, and we kind of had a bantering thing going on. Oh, man, that's pretty interesting. So they were fast frenemies. But <laughs> so after first impressions like that, like what made them want to work together? Well, Paige's project sounded amazing, and this uh, sort of made its way around campus, and Bryn was actually attracted to the challenge. He'd already bounced between a few different thesis topics of his own, but none of them seemed half as interesting in light of Backrub. And as Bryn put it, I talked to lots of research groups, and this was the most exciting project because it tackled the web, which represents human knowledge, and because I liked Larry. So, see, they, they truly liked each other, just like... uh Tommy Boy or Step Brothers or any good buddy comedy. Just like that. <laughs> I mean, they definitely had their work cut out for them, though. I mean, crawling the whole web. There's actually this site I'd never heard about until Gabe told us about it, but it's called WorldWideWebSize.com. Mm -hmm. And it gives a daily estimate of how big the Internet is. And today, the Internet contains at least 4.49 billion pages. <laughs> and these are the ones that we can see. So it's a ton of links to count. Yeah, but but to be fair, Backrub launched almost 25 years ago, and the web was only made up of about 10 million documents back then, yeah. which, you know, don't get me wrong, there's still an insane amount of links between those pages, but you got to remember, Paige and Bryn weren't just trying to count all those links, they were actually looking for a way to rank the pages being linked to. But but rank by what? Like earlier you mentioned ranking pages by importance, but, but what makes one web page more important than another? Sure. So the pair's ranking system was designed to favor links that came from important sources while downplaying those that didn't. So, for example, there are all kinds of different sites that link to Amazon. 
And some of those links might come from business partners like Whole Foods, but others just come from random people like, I don't know, like a teenager who's sharing gift ideas on his blog. And from most people's point of view, the business partner would be the more important link. All right, well, that makes sense. But to an extent, it still feels like a pretty human-centric judgment call on this. I mean, how would a search engine know how to prioritize a company's business partners over just their customers? Well, it wouldn't, unless you were able to translate that human measure of importance into a set of criteria it could recognize. And this is really where Page and Brin's biggest innovation comes in. It's this algorithm known as PageRank. And yeah, it, it is actually named after Page himself. <laughs> And using this algorithm, Backrub was actually able to keep track of both the number of links into a particular site and the number of links into each of those linking sites. So to go back to the Amazon example, like imagine that only a few other sites link to the teenager's blog, you know, friends, family, whatever. Since most of the sites that link to his are likely personal sites as well, they probably don't have many sites linking to them either. But on the other hand, there are thousands of sites that link to Whole Foods and plenty of those sites also have thousands of sites linking to them. So PageRank would recognize this distinction and deem the Whole Foods site more important than the teenager site, with respect to Amazon at least. All right, so it's importance by way of popularity then. You know, it's also not a perfect system, but it's definitely pretty ingenious the way they came up with this. And I'm also guessing it didn't take long for Page and Brenda to realize these page rankings could make for a pretty incredible search engine. Yeah, not at all. So they they quickly found that Backrub delivered better results than, you know, any other search engine out there. And because engines like AltaVista and Excite were only pulling and ranking sites based on given keywords, you could get linked to sites that really weren't that authoritative or useful. They didn't have that secret weapon of a link counting algorithm like PageRank. But Page and Brin's search engine wasn't just superior at the time. Its design meant that it would only get better and better the bigger the internet grew. And as more pages and links were added to the web, the backrub engine scaled accordingly and was made to become more accurate. I mean, it was a phenomenal design, and it's actually from this infinite scalability that we get the name Google. The founders chose to play it as a word on Google, which is uh, the term for the number one followed by a 100 zeros. I mean, honestly, anything is better than the name Backrub, so I think uh, good choice there. But all right, so they have a name, they have a working engine, but, you know, complexity aside, this is still a school project, right? Like, it's not a business at this point. Yeah, so the first version of Google was actually released as a feature on the Stanford website in August of 96, which, by the way, was only one year after Paige and Bryn first met. And as we said, immediately hated each other. But <laughs> anyway, now that we've covered Google and how it got its start, let's talk a little bit about how it made the transition to, you know, a proper company. Sure, but before we do, let's take a quick break. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Fuma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about how Google became the go-to source for information on, well, just about everything. Okay, so by the fall of 96, Larry Page and Sergey Brin knew they had a hit on their hands, but they weren't sure if they were ready for all the responsibilities and headaches that come with starting and running a business. I mean, doing so would mean leaving Stanford early without graduating, and that was a tough pill to swallow given their academic backgrounds. But they obviously went for it anyway, so, so what caused them to change their minds? Ultimately, their big push came from Bryn's college advisor, offering a bit of perspective. He said, uh, look, if this Google thing pans out, then great. If not, you can return to graduate school and finish your thesis. And that seemed sensible enough to Bryn. So he said, yeah, OK, why not? I'll just give it a try. I love how nonchalant this whole thing was. Like, I know they can't know then what they know now, but uh-huh. just thinking this idea of like, okay, like ditch school and start a multi-billion dollar tech company. You want to do it? Okay. <laughs> I mean, there actually was a little hesitation in there. Apparently, they brought the idea to Excite and asked them to buy it for $1.6 million. $1.6 million? I know. And, and there was actually a discussion they had. In the story I read, it was really more Larry Page trying to sell the idea but he said he'd stay with Excite for like a few months and then he wanted to return to school. But the CEO of Excite said Backrub was actually too effective <laughs> and it would actually drive people off the site too quickly. Like he wanted to slow it down to 80% of its speed oh my gosh. just to make sure that the customers stayed on the search engine and looked at display ads. And then like the talks broke down from there. And and weirdly, like while there's talk of compensation for Page in those discussions, there's actually no mention of Bryn. At least that's what Business Insiders reporting in the memo showed. That is so strange. All right. Mm-hmm. So they took their professor's advice. They moved out of the dorm room and the Google's first office, you know, which, as we mentioned, was actually just a garage in the suburbs of I think it was Menlo Park, California. Mm-hmm. You know, this is August of 1998. And and shortly after that, the duo received a, an investment. I think it was a hundred thousand dollars, and this was from the co-founder of Sun Microsystems. This was actually a pretty risky move. I mean, Google wasn't even incorporated as this legitimate company yet, so yeah, they were forking over a good bit of money for this unproven private enterprise, just a couple of college dropouts. I mean, it's definitely not a safe bet. Yeah, so I, I read that their first investment check was actually made out to Google Inc., which, as you said, didn't exist yet. So Page and Bryn figured. Hey, now might be a good time to incorporate. And so they did. Wow. Of course, that investment paid off for everyone in the end. In fact, we talked about the garage that they rented. That was from somebody named Susan Wojcicki. And and she went on to become the marketing manager for Google. And I think she was their 16th employee. Mm -hmm. Well, today she's the CEO of YouTube. That's awesome. And I I know from our Amazon episode that all kinds of eccentric business practices and cost-saving measures crop up during the garage-based days of these giant companies. So, like... You remember the bell Amazon employees would ring whenever they made a sale or those makeshift desks they cobbled together from old doors. Did, did you come across anything like that for Google? Oh, definitely. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of examples. But you know how companies use these big server racks and cabinets to, to keep, you know, like their all their computing mm-hmm. power and everything? 
Well, the rat Google started with was built entirely from Legos. Oh, really? This was actually a pretty <laughs> smart move. You know, they were pretty cash strapped and it helped them expand along the way as long as they had some, you know, extra bricks lying around. <laughs> but actually, the most famous bit of irreverence is probably the rotating assortment of those Google doodles that show up on the site's landing page. And believe it or not, they also got their start in Susan's garage. I didn't realize they went back that far. Yeah, according to Public Radio International, there are well over 4,000 different Google Doodles today. Mm -hmm. But the very first one dates back to August 30th of 1998. Now, all the stress from their impending incorporation was really starting to get to the guys. So before they'd even finished all the necessary paperwork... They decided to spend a week in the Nevada desert at the annual Burning Man Festival. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. It's so funny because, like, you'd think of it as a thing now where, like, right. Rover Norquist is going and all these CTOs are, like, have to show up. But, uh. This was 20 years ago. I know. It's pretty wild. So, so they just had a vision for the doodle out in the playa? Well, no, the first doodle actually came in the form of this out-of-office message that Paige and Bren added to the company's homepage before they headed out to the desert. I guess they weren't planning to spend a lot of time in their computer at Burning Man, (laughs) but, you know, appropriately enough, they decided to use that Burning Man logo, just a little stick figure guy, and they placed it behind the second O in Google. And the guys liked the idea of decorating the company logo as a way to mark notable events. And so much so, in fact, two years later, the founders asked one of their interns to draw up a doodle for Bastille Day. I love that this was the (laughs) the next one that they decided. But the result was a hit. So Paige and Bren requested more and then promoted the intern to the rank of chief doodler. (laughs) I feel like his parents must have been so proud. Well, I mean, I don't know how proud they were then, but they definitely should be now. So the guy's name is Dennis Wang. And I know when we visited Google that was probably the most excited we got. We were like, oh, this yeah. is the dude that draws these? I think we even took a picture with him. We right? did. That was pretty awesome. Well, in addition to cranking out about 50 doodles per year since 2000, he actually later became the company's international webmaster, too. That's pretty amazing. And I, I do love how that seems to be a theme with these guys. Like, the woman who rented them her garage became one of their CEOs, and the guy who made the funny drawings was put in charge of all their international content. You know, it's pretty cool. And obviously, they've won lots of awards for employee satisfaction. You know, it, it was funny when, when we went out to the Google campus, which was, you know, forever ago. It just seemed like such a dream place to work. Like, They did your laundry. People had their dogs with them. There were these, like, free T-shirt bins that everyone was so excited about, like, irrationally excited about. And I remember it was sunny, and there were just people on the green with their laptops working. But then they'd sub into, like, a set of volleyball that was going on. It it was... It was phenomenal to see. Like, I, I'd heard all these things about Google, but but seeing it is completely different. Yeah. Well, since you're bringing up Google's more benevolent aspects, I mean, why don't we talk a little bit about the guiding philosophies that, that, that kind of took shape during those early years of the company? Because it, it was around this time that Google laid out both its mission statement, and that mission statement is, quote, to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. And then its official motto, which used to be, don't be evil. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and I mean, the company kind of downplays that motto more and more over time. Not that I think they're pro-evil now. Well, you know, for a good long while, Google seemed to take the mantra pretty seriously. And it was actually a big part of the founder's 2004 letter when they were announcing that Google was going public. And those three little words, I mean, they're still the cornerstone of the company's code of conduct, if you were to go look it up. So I am curious, who actually came up with the motto? Was it Paige or Bryn? Uh, you know, it might not have been either one of them, although huh. both of them took to it pretty quickly. And, and the real origin of the phrase is, is still somewhat disputed. But the best guess credits the inspiration to Paul Buchet, who was the engineer who created Gmail. Hmm. Now, in his mind, the motto was, quote, 
a bit of a jab at a lot of other companies, especially our competitors, who at the time, in our opinion, were kind of exploiting the users to some extent, which is a little bit funny to hear that, given what they do with everything. (laughs) But, you know, Google wanted to set itself apart, and most of the higher-ups agreed the best way of doing so was just to not be evil. Which is interesting because, like, what does it really mean? I mean, it, it seems like just like with that question of how to define the importance of a web page, there isn't actually like a single clear-cut definition for evil. Yeah, it's true. But, you know, if you look at some of the reports that, that have come out about this, it, there, there was actually this interesting interview that Eric Schmidt did with Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And I remember hearing him on the, the program that time. And he was explaining the motto and he said, the idea is that we don't quite know what evil is. But if we have a rule that says don't be evil, then the employees can say, I think that's evil. <laughs> so now when I showed up, I thought this was the stupidest rule ever because you know, there's no book about evil except maybe, you know, the Bible or something. So what happens is I'm sitting in this meeting and we're having a debate about an advertising product. And one of the engineers pounds his fist on the table and says, that's evil. And then the whole conversation stops. Everyone goes into conniptions, and eventually we stop the project. So it did work. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I do love that story. And I, I know we can get hung up on whether Google is always behaving ethically, but I also kind of like that it's just this looming guideline. Yeah, and I don't want to get too philosophical here, but we should talk a little bit more about what evil might be and, and how Google actually makes its money. But first, let's take a quick break. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Okay, well, so give it to me straight. How evil is Google? Like, are they LexCorp evil or are they more like that company from Alien that's like constantly getting its employees killed by aliens? So those are my two options there. <laughs> I'm, I'm not so sure on that one. Now, you know, recently there's been a bit of a love-hate relationship between Google and the general public. And I think about all the half-hearted jokes you hear about Google and them taking over the world or the way we assume and kind of accept that the company is keeping tabs on what we do online and probably knows everything there is to know about us. You know, we we, we did an episode, I guess, a couple of months ago mm-hmm. about how much the Internet knows about us. And 
Some of that was a little bit troubling, I have to admit. And, you know, the truth is that folks are right to be somewhat wary of any company that gathers data on you and then uses it to turn a profit. Right, which is something Google definitely does. But, you know, it's not alone. MoviePass's model is also based on this. And yeah. everyone's tracking our data now. And I, I do think most people are at least dimly aware that Google keeps track of where you are and what you use its services for. And, and then it uses that info to generate targeted ads. But what people might not know is that this kind of advertising is actually the most profitable part of the whole company. Yeah, and I feel like that's kind of an open secret, though, don't you? I mean, if you really stop to think about it, all of Google services don't cost anything. You've got the search engine, the web browser, the email service, all the various apps. But, you know, as the old saying goes, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And, you know, in Google's case, the unspoken cost, I guess, is our privacy. Yeah, but which is really weird to think about because, like, then you could kind of make the case that we're actually the product that Google's selling to its real customers, yeah. which... You know, from that point of view, all that handy free services that they offer are just really incentives to get us on board with being sold. Yeah, well, why don't we talk a little bit about when Google got into the ad game? And I mean, I would have to think that was a huge turning point for the company. It was, yeah, because for the first three years after it incorporated, Google really wasn't making much money, you know, despite having the best search engine in town. But that all changed in 2000 when Google launched AdWords. So this was the company's first venture beyond its search engine. It was an automated pay-per-click ad auction platform. And with Google's ability to tailor the ads it sold to specific users based on their search preferences, the company was able to corner the market in digital advertising for what's coming up on, I guess, two decades now. Plus, you know, all that incoming cash allowed Google to invest in new services like Gmail, Blogger, Google Maps, YouTube. And in turn, each of these services provide its own new stream of ad-driven revenue. Well, it's obviously really smart. And you said the AdWords platform that works with all these services. I mean, that's where Google's profits really come from. So how much are we talking about exactly? So in 2017, AdWords accounted for $95.4 billion of Google's total revenue that year. Of their total revenue, which was what? About $110 billion. Good Lord. I mean, that's the difference of around $15 billion between those two. And and we say a lot of things are insane on this show. <laughs> but drawing basically $100 billion from advertising alone, yeah, that's insane. That it's counts. More insane than cats. Right. Yeah, I guess. Well, I mean, I don't know, Mango. <laughs> well, so you know what else is crazy is that uh, that Eric Schmidt guy you quoted earlier, the CEO who thought don't be evil was a stupid idea. <laughs> he was a big supporter of Google going all in on ad-driven revenue and Pretty much all of Google's services, the the ones we mentioned, are, are came about on his watch. So he stepped down from his exec role last December in favor of a more advisory role with the company. But after steering the ship for the last 17 years, his fingerprints and business ethos are all over Google. Well, there's definitely a lot to talk about on the privacy front. But one of the other things that, that many people might find a little bit troubling, and it's something that people have been talking about in terms of, you know, what the Internet knows about us for years now is that by providing instant, unfettered access to information about literally everything. The Internet is actually retraining our brains to act more like high-speed data processors and less like tools for, you know, careful contemplation. And, I mean, I'd say that's a valid concern for sure, but maybe it's not fair to pin something like that entirely on Google, like everything in moderation, right? And if we take advantage of these services to the point that we impair our own thinking or decrease our attention spans, that's kind of on us. You know, sure, but to to an extent, I mean, there, there's also reason to think that companies like Google and Facebook are are maybe exacerbating the problem on purpose. Hmm. I actually came across this old Atlantic article from 2008, 
And it pointed out just how much this brain reprogramming is really in the best interest of Google and all these other data farming companies. The author is Nicholas Carr, and he writes, quote, The faster we surf across the web, the more links we click and pages we view, the more opportunities Google and other companies gain to collect information about us and to feed us advertisements. Most of the proprietors of the commercial Internet have a financial stake in collecting the crumbs of data we leave behind as we flip from link to link. The more crumbs, the better. The last thing these companies want is to encourage leisurely reading or slow, concentrated thought. It's in their economic interest to drive us to distraction. <laughs> That's what he said. But, you know, so if Silicon Valley companies are going to say things like, you know, do no evil or have these grand mission statements about bettering the world. It does only seem fair to hold the company's feet to the fire a little bit when it fails to live up to these kinds of statements. And, you know, I'd say that encouraging that kind of thoughtless thinking, if it makes any sense, you know, for the sake of profit, kind of qualifies as one of those cases. Well, I mean, that that is pretty smart. And uh, on that note, I, I want to mention this as a way to avoid bias. All of the research for today's program was conducted exclusively through Bing. There's no way that's true. <laughs> it definitely wasn't true on my that's end. That's not true. But you know what is 100% true? Every single fact in this fact off. So let's get started. All right, well, to put a bit of perspective around just how much traffic is driven by Google, consider the fact that back in August of 2013, Google had a power outage for all of about five minutes. But during that time, everything from its search engine to YouTube to Google Drive were all down. And during that five-minute period, web traffic around the world plummeted by 40%. That's insane. It really is. So earlier we talked about the whole constructed languages uh, crossword puzzle that we yeah, made. So yeah. did, did you know that you can actually select Swedish chef as a preferred language in Google search? I did not know that. It's called Bork, Bork, Bork. <laughs> and you can also choose Klingon, Pig Latin, Pirate, and Elmer Fudd, among others. Uh, I'm really hoping our college friend John is not listening to today's episode since he always liked to talk in uh, Bork, Bork, Bork. So, uh, <laughs> all right. Well, when we visited, I know we were blown away by all the perks and the free food and everything else at Google. But, you know, reading about some of the employee benefits is pretty interesting, too. Apparently, they have these unbelievable death benefits. I know that's kind of a funny phrase to uh -huh. say, but if an employee dies, their partner actually gets half of the deceased employee's salary for a decade. Oh, wow. And the kids of that employee get $1,000 a month until they're 19, or actually until 23 if they're in school full time. That's really stunning. So have you heard about this flying taxi startup that Larry Page is behind? Uh-uh. The company's called Kitty Hawk, and they recently had a reveal for this thing. It's an autonomous air taxi named Cora. Two people can actually ride in it. It takes off with these rotors that are on the wings, you know, like a helicopter, mm -hmm. but then it just flies like a plane, so it doesn't really need a runway. Huh. They've been doing some secret test flights in New Zealand where we like to do all our testing for our secret projects. Yeah, I don't, and, want, I don't want people to know that. <laughs> and in fact, they, they've been working with the government there in New Zealand to get a whole fleet of these ready to release. Wow. So how far and, and, and how fast can these things go? They can apparently travel for a little over 60 miles at about 110 miles per hour. They travel at about 3,000 feet elevation, and I'll definitely be interested to see what happens with these. I, mm -hmm. I might give it a little bit of time before I hop in. I one. think I'm going to give it more than a little bit of time, <laughs> but it is really interesting. All right, well, on a lighter note, I always look forward to seeing what Google is up to on April Fool's Day. Their pranks are always pretty funny. Mm -hmm. You know, from the Google UK and Google Australia sites, Rick rolling every featured video back in 2008. <laughs> I mean, that's a real commitment, that's giving amazing. up some serious <laughs> ad revenue there. To the auto awesome for resumes project where you could take a boring resume 
and it would add emojis and animation, you know, to make it more exciting. I wonder if anybody mm-hmm. used it and then submitted those resumes. But I think some of my favorites are the fake food and drink products they've launched. Like they had uh, one called Google Gulp, which came in these delicious flavors like sugar-free radical and beta carity. <laughs> and, and it was, quote, designed to maximize your surfing efficiency by making you more intelligent and less thirsty. <laughs> then there was also the Google Fiber Bar, which they announced by saying, as we started thinking about fiber, we realized that there hadn't been real innovation in the world of fiber in a very long time. <laughs> it's kind of a shame these things weren't real. I know. So I, I recently read a story that the details of the acquisition of YouTube were negotiated at a Denny's over a delicious appetizer of mozzarella sticks. At a Denny's? <laughs> yeah, so the YouTube co-founder Stephen Chen said, quote, We didn't want to meet at offices, so we were like, where's a place none of us would go to? I'm guessing the $1.65 billion deal was probably the biggest deal ever negotiated at a Denny's. No kidding. But you know what's weird? At that time, that amount of money seemed huge. I I mean, I guess it still sounds huge, but we're talking for YouTube. Yeah, that is kind of crazy. You would think it would have been sold for much, much more. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the only thing that would have made an even better fact would have been if a deal had been negotiated over a plate of moons over Miami, <laughs> don't you think? Definitely. But the fact that you've successfully gotten me to reference moons over Miami, Mango, <laughs> I think it means I've got to give you this fact off. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for listening. If we've forgotten any great facts about Google or the the internet in general. We'd love to hear from you as always. You can email us part-time genius at howstuffworks.com or call us on our 24-7 fact hotline 1-844-PT-GENIUS. How else can they reach us, Mango? Well, they can reach us through email, Twitter, all, all, all sorts of ways, but I, there's one more fact I wanted to mention. Oh, yeah. Uh, today's Gabe's birthday. Oh, happy birthday, Gabe. Happy birthday, Gabe. And if you want to send Gabe a message, just put it on our Facebook and we'll forward it to him. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids, Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Fuma, Sarah McLaughlin. 
Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.